Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Started on time, more or less. Hey, this doesn't know treat you. Uh, we have an action-packed show today, impromptu show, because I couldn't do a show at the weekend. Obviously, we normally do this on a Saturday or a Sunday, but life intruded. Sorry about that. Turns out I do have some sort of life. It's just quite chaotic. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. We are going to talk about later an uprising in France, the attempt by Emmanuel Macron, who is a the neoliberal centrist dad pin-up, um, president of France, who has tried to force three pension age hikes. The French people did not like this, but actually there's a lot more going on as well. We're talking to Cole Stangler, the brilliant journalist who is in France, who will be reporting on what's actually happening on the ground. What's actually driving this beyond the issue of pensions, which a lot of people have been focusing on, understandably, but it does go much broader than that. Um, And we'll talk about you know, where this is likely to lead. Will the left benefit from it? Obviously, France has a very strong uh, far right in the form of, of course, uh, Marine Le Pen's movement. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about there. We'll also be talking about the suspension, not the suspension, Jeremy Corbyn being kicked out of the Labour Party, essentially. He's been forbidden, or sorry, his local party is linked to North, has been forbidden from reselecting him as their local candidate. They've selected him as their candidate in every single election since 1983, before I was born, um, in which he's won 10 elections in a row. Uh, they've been banned, their democratic right to reselect him as an MP, in an overtly factional move by the people around Keir Starmer, who won the Labour leadership on an entirely duplicitous and dishonest programme. Um, we'll be talking about that with Jess Barnard, who is a member of Labour's NEC. She voted, that's a National Elected Committee, she voted to keep obviously Jeremy Corbyn, or to maintain the democratic right of his local party to reselect him. Um, but we're talking about what happened in the meeting and where next for the Labour left, because some people might be thinking, that's finished. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about there. Um, first, we were talking about Scotland and, of course, the election of Hunza Youssef, the new um, First Minister and SNP leader. Uh, after, a, I would say, a pretty acrimonious leadership contest, which pitted chiefly him, who represents the more socially progressive uh, wing of, of the independence movement against Kate Forbes, who combines social co- conservatism with right-wing economics. She got 48% of the vote. What does that tell us about the SNP, about where next for Scotland? Um, got lots to talk about in terms of Scotland. Before I bring in two brilliant guests who can actually explain very clearly from Scotland what exactly is has happened and what what happens next. Uh, If you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. Uh, You can support the channel, keep it on the road using um, Super Chats, which I will read out at the end, which I will remember this time and avoid getting yelled at um, correctly, if I forget, Um, which I'll put your Super Chats to the guests and thank you at the end. But you can support us at patreon.com forward slash Jones 
um 84 um and you can also listen to us on the podcast lots of you do listen on the podcast so i always forget to i guess give that the love that it deserves um let's go straight in and talk to rory scothorn and steph uh, payton rory is a historian and writer steph has lots of hats columnists various i mean lots of brilliant um uh, columns which you should read i often do read to get the lay of the land i suppose Hello to you both. Hi. Um, let's just have a, should we just have a little look? This is just see Hunza um, becoming First Minister of Scotland. Mr. Yusuf, uh, will you now take the oath spell office? There are three of them. First, the official oath. You swear that you will well and truly serve His Majesty King Charles in the office of First Minister of the Scottish Government. And now, in relation to the Keeper of the Seal, you swear that you will well and truly serve His Majesty King Charles in the office of Keeper of the Scottish Seal. And the third, the Oath of Allegiance. I think just watching Oaths of Allegiance to the King after a while is going to be a bit jarring, so we'll just leave it at that. Um, let's just start. In terms of um, Hunza, you said being portrayed as a continuity candidate to Sturgeon, that's broadly how he's been portrayed. Um, as interesting, he's a millennial, he's actually slightly younger than me, which is humiliating. Um, Steph, do you want to just start with that? What do you think? Is 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 it just straightforward? Hunza is just the sorry, you I shouldn't just have referred to politicians on their first name. Uh, do, is he just straightforward continuity, or is there anything different? What do you what do you make of his political direction? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that'll be something we'll see in time uh he definitely was whether you know entirely by himself but also the people around him kind of selling himself as very much a continuity candidate and someone who was going to continue the path of that the SNP was already taking to see where it would go next he has kind of promised some reforms and he's promised to kind of work to reform issues within the SNP itself um but no I don't think we would be expecting really any radical shift from Hamza Yusuf in terms of the direction of the party not like in the way that maybe some of the other candidates were sort of setting out their table of, of the direction that they would want to take things. Uh, I think we can probably expect more of the same and more of progressing the agenda that the SNP were elected to carry out in the first place. What do you think, Rory? Is there continuity or any meaningful political differences with Sturgeon's administration? Yeah, of, of the options uh, available to SNP members, he was absolutely the continuity candidate. You had Ash Reagan, who was offering a pretty radical break. It was it's surprising she's still a member of the party, to be quite honest. She was a real fundamentalist on independence and just wildly critical of, of the leadership's record on most things. Uh, Forbes, again, very much on the right of the party. Hamza was styled and styled himself as continuity, but um, to understand his own views, uh, is quite hard because he's uh, very much a loyalist for his whole career. Um, but from what we've seen so far, uh, what he's essentially doing is doubling down on a particular side of Sturgeonism insofar as that was a thing. So he is, um, with his cabinet picks, which he just announced earlier today, um, has basically opted for a fairly progressive looking cabinet. And so he's styled it as the first majority woman uh, cabinet in Scotland. Um, Kate Forbes is back to the back benches, having been offered rural affairs. Um, and his campaign picked up on some criticisms that had been made of Sturgeon's um, 
model of progressivism, which was generally seen as lacking a bit of economic force behind it. So while Sturgeon appealed to um, or, or expressed solidarity with, with LGBT people and, and showed a kind of commitment to recognition and rights for uh, women, people of colour, LGBT people, that often wasn't matched by the kind of financial firepower um, that was needed to transform towards a more just economy. During his campaign, Yusuf promised uh, to look at a wealth tax to uh, try and take a public stake in further rounds of uh, licensing wind farms, things like this. These were things missing from Sturgeonism, a kind of economic industrial interventionism. But Sturgeon was very good at talking in that direction and then not doing anything. So there is still a question about whether Hums is just going to pick up on that same habit. But so far, slightly surprisingly, given how close the result was, Yusuf has doubled down on the progressive agenda that he staked out in the leadership campaign. Now, 52% in the end, after second preferences, voted uh, for Hamza, the cursed 52-48 dynamic. 48% voted for Kate Forbes, who stood on a socially, clearly very socially conservative, um, in terms of making clear her instinctive rejection of, on a personal level, of LGBTQ rights, right to abortion, etc., but also economically right-wing. And 48% of SNP members voted for that. I mean... Tartan Tory was an epithet which was thrown at the SNP, certainly in the 70s and 80s. Don't think that was a fair characterization of Sturgeonism. I think a pretty, I don't think it's an inaccurate description of, of what Forbes was representing. What does that say about, I mean, should we start with you this time, Roy? I'll keep switching it over. What doesn't that show that actually a very significant chunk of the SNP isn't progressive at all? I'd actually be surprised if someone like Forbes, with her views, would have risen to the top of the current Labour Party, let alone. Do you see what I mean? What, what, do you, what, do you, what does that tell us about the SNP, its internal contradictions? Well, it was almost like this thing bubbling up from the past, actually, this, this leadership campaign, because the SNP has always been split between these two sides. Historically, the SNP was a party of small-town rural constituencies where people were quite socially conservative, quite authoritarian, but economically open-minded. So it was a kind of party of small-town liberalism in a lot of ways. And there's a distinctive tradition of highland liberalism in Scotland, which you absolutely see in Kate Forbes' politics. Now, that liberalism was always very closely connected to religion in parts of the highlands, and, and Forbes' faith was obviously a big part of the election campaign throughout. She's a member of the Free Church of Scotland, um, which is particularly socially conservative, even within um, Scottish Protestantism. And... Um, that came out very early in the campaign, but having got that out of the way, um, in a pretty damaging way, I would say, Forbes kind of admitting to all of her beliefs, um, she then managed to recover a bit with members who seemed, I would say, to be able to slightly put those things to one side. I wouldn't say that this was a ringing endorsement of Forbes's um, social conservatism. I would say that a lot of those people who voted for Forbes were doing so because she was picked up by the media as the most competent candidate who could sell the party to new voters. They were worried about Yusuf being such a loyalist to the, the previous leadership. Um, and I think people, I think some of that 48% will have been quite socially conservative, no doubt. But I would say there was a lot of people who voted for her who were not doing it um, for those reasons, who were doing it because she was seen as a fresh new face, who might be able to clean house a bit. Um, the more worrying thing was her, her economic prospectus um, being probably sincerely endorsed 
by quite a lot of those people, which is a right-wing one. I mean, she is a neoliberal in, in, in most respects. Her whole economic strategy document that she recently produced was just full of these hymns to the power of the entrepreneur, how we need to spread entrepreneurship across life. Um, and, and, and that's a part of her agenda that was never really properly uh, criticised during the campaign because she was seen as a, a competent finance secretary. Steph, what do you think? Yeah, I'd say actually broadly I do agree um, with where everybody's coming from there. I mean, if you look at the split of first preferences versus second preferences, you know, that first round of voting, you had Kate Forbes coming in at about 40% and Ash Reagan coming in at just over 11%, which, you know, is someone who's watching it had that real kind of <laughs> moment that are we about to elect um, a really socially conservative person to the position of first minister but when we get to the second round of voting Hamza Yusuf ultimately came out in top so I don't think it's as simple as um, thinking that those kind of more socially conservative positions are what was driving all voters otherwise I think Ash Reagan's vote would have more closely aligned with um, second preferences going to Kate Forbes. I, I agree. I think it was in a competency or uh, being perceived as competent that probably drove a degree of the content, uh, sorry, a degree of the votes that went to Kate Forbes. But I mean, this is really the culmination of a long split in the SNP and in the independence movement as a whole of creating a broad church movement and trying to kind of bring everyone along is that there have been elements within both the SNP and the independence movement who want to talk broad church but at the same time kind of also want their perspective their idea of what it's supposed to be and um, to be the only one that everyone sort of gets behind um, and and so now we've ended up in this position where yeah there was quite an acrimonious fight throughout the course of this where arguably Kate Forbes and Ash Reagan did quite a degree of damage to the SNP and its reputation both as progressive but also you know in terms of the, the famous um, unity that the party has mm -hmm. held for a long long time it's kind of all fallen away and what's been left in its place is a party that now looks broadly like most other political parties in the UK and that sort of magical shine and mythologized SNP that I think a lot of people have um, perceived is it doesn't exist it's gone it was quite an interesting, a really, very interesting question for David Barter. What's the probability of major risks forming in the SNP and possible sabotage from the right of the SNP? Can Humza take any lessons from Corbyn's Labour? And it's interesting because I suppose partly maybe what he's referring to there is that when Corbyn won in 2015, he attempted to put together a shadow cabinet basically full of people who completely opposed him. And then that fell apart in a very spectacular fashion as they all marched off a few months later attempt to bring him down. What Yusuf did is appoint Forbes, try to appoint Forbes as his rural affairs minister, which is quite funny. It's like the, you can't appoint in, in the Scottish government someone to be Northern Ireland secretary. So it's, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like it, you're giving them a, an intentionally small job and a massive um, demotion from where she was as finance secretary. Um, and I, I believe only one member of his cabinet is um, didn't vote for him. So what do you what do you think, Steph? Do you think actually he's actually that's quite a canny move? Like there's not really much point bringing a load a load of people in the name of a broad church who might not necessarily have their, your their, your best intentions. See, I actually have a slight point of contention there because I have heard people talking about this demotion to rural affairs, but Scotland is a very rural country, and some of the language I've heard used around it, I think it kind of does down. The rural communities in Scotland who frankly need someone representing them in a parliament that 
has a let's say uh, focuses on the central bit more than it should you know having somebody in there who's like a really good spokesperson and, and an advocate for rural communities because across scotland is personally i think a pretty important job but at the same time yeah sure it's it's a step away from maybe like a bigger ticket job than the finance secretary at the same time though um i mean i do wonder how viable a position like that for kate forbes even was i mean the beginning of the entire leadership campaign when you know kate forbes started sharing some of her views let's say i think a few people were rightly asking if she could even stay in the party at the end of this never mind then a really high up position within the cabinet but i mean at the end of the day i guess hamza made a, a degree of a peace offering and she chose to go to the back benches instead um and that's i don't know i don't think it necessarily brings people together um and i'm not sure there was an option that would have brought everyone together in the end R rory the smp governed thanks to an agreement with the scottish green party who were obviously pro-independence but to the left of the scottish national party um and they made it very clear that if Forbes won, that wasn't going to work, and it clearly wouldn't have worked. What What is the role of the Greens, do you think, now under a Hunza Yusuf administration, and how much actual leverage have they successfully used to push the administration in a more progressive direction? And how much do you think that could... Where's that going to go from here? The, the Greens' inclusion in government um, was very interesting in the first place. It was a, It was a huge deal in a lot of ways. And, and the thing that I think a lot of people in Scotland have forgotten is that it really transformed um, the entire narrative around the direction of the SNP. Right up until that election, just before the SNP brought the Greens in, before Sturgeon herself brought the Greens in, um, there was a lot of murmuring about the SNP kind of pitching to the right a little, starting to try and bring some more kind of centrist commentators on board, to broaden their appeal on independence, to reach out to to right-wingers and, and, and certainly on, on the economy to reach out to the business community, certainly after COVID, um, when a lot of business, small businesses are very upset with them. And then they win the election and they go into government with the Greens, who are widely portrayed as hostile to the business community. And this really shifted the whole tenor of discussion of the SNP, particularly amongst the kind of centrist media cast in Scotland, who got very, very upset at the prospect of the SNP being influenced by a political force that was not able to be disciplined by the media. The thing about the Greens is they're a fairly member-led party and they don't particularly care as much as the other parties about what the Times think and even what the what the, the Scottish tabloids think. Um, and as a result of that, they've been wildly unpopular amongst those publications. Um, and this has been a lot of the um, what lies behind the growing hostility to Sturgeon from a lot of kind of Scottish established civil society. You see this new force influencing politics in Scotland that they can't get their claws into. Um, and so the Greens have been very important in turning a lot of people against the SNP, I would say, um, in, in making it harder for them to build consensus across civil society. Personally, I would say that's not a bad thing, that civil society is quite a conservative civil society in many ways. Um, but the Greens have, have not done a huge amount in government, I would say. It's a kind of wait and see thing. Their big promise was a new deal for tenants, and that's supposed to come towards the end of this this um, term in government. And and so we'll really find out if if they can really shift things left through that. But 
even since um, going into government, the SNP have created a slightly more progressive tax system and have, have done some things for tenants. They, they implemented a, sh a short and, and not fully substantial rent freeze and they banned some evictions, but all this stuff was a bit milk toast, a bit, a bit kind of short term and soft. And so a really serious shift to the left is yet to emerge from the Greens government. Um, but it, it will cause long-term uh, political change in Scotland. The more Greens can build up their credibility, the bigger the vote's going to get. Their vote has largely grown so far. And so they probably established themselves as a much more serious force as a result of going into government. And Hamza winning means that that will continue. Steph, what do you think about, about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of disagreement within the Green Party itself, within the Scottish Greens, about whether or not the Butte House Agreement that kind of brings, brings them together is the right route for the party. I mean, I'd say that there have been Green victories over the last couple of years um, in, in pushing the SNP to adopting marginally more left-wing positions, though I reckon people could argue whether or not the SNP uh, had sort of agreed beforehand how much uh, ground they were willing to seat in those positions. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest ones, though, is um, gender recognition reform. You know, it's it's something the SNP had talked very left on, then never gone anywhere with, uh, just kind of kept kicking the can down the road until the Scottish Green Party came in and uh, became a really driving force behind actually getting it over the line. And the fact that Hamza Yusuf has now said that he is committed to challenging the UK government over its attempts to functionally block that reform. Uh, that's going to be something that's quite interesting to see play out. And it's also weirder that as a party of independence, the other two candidates were not willing to apparently <laughs> challenge the UK government over stepping um, into devolved territories. But um, yeah, I, I think the fact that it is Hamza who won and it is the Greens in power, it's going to have quite a, an interesting impact on the relationship between Scotland and Westminster. Um, for whatever comes next. But I mean, ultimately, yeah, I think Rory's right. The Greens have built their profile off of this. Um, they're definitely going to have attracted a lot more support um, off of this, but it's definitely not a settled issue internally in the Green Party, um, where a lot of people have the concern that the Greens are maybe becoming a little bit like the Lib Dems when they went into coalition with the Conservatives, although admittedly they've not come anywhere close to uh, <laughs> giving away harsher austerity measures in exchange for a plastic bag charge you know it's like we're definitely not in that territory but i think a lot of people do wish they would go further uh, just finally i'll just put throw two final things together uh firstly um 2015 when the smp won 58 out of no 56 right out of 59 seats and scottish labor was used to one that looked like the wheel of history had turned it didn't just look like an election defeat for the labor party so is the Labour Party back in business in Scotland? And the other thing is, is has the forward march of independence halted? Is this now, um, you know, just, or would you look at some of the underlying fundamentals, younger people more like support independence will actually, you know, the fundamentals are strong. What do you, what do you think, Rory, on those two things? Revival of Scottish Labour and forward march of independence halted, kind of interlinked a bit. Yeah, I think... We're yet to see. It really depends how Yusuf does. I think he's in a really tough position. He is well known, but not well liked. And that is a difficult position to be in for a politician just starting in, in, in the job he's in. Um, he's not perceived across the country as particularly competent. He's had a lot of senior positions in cabinet as, as 
transport than justice than um, health secretary. Uh, he didn't. He has not got a great reputation on the back of that. So he's building up from quite a low base. Um, as a result of that, the SNP are likely to lose votes in the next next election. It's going to be almost impossible for anyone to follow Nicola Sturgeon in terms of just maintaining that massive coalition. Um, those those votes will not necessarily all go to Labour, um, or rather, they might. Some of them might go to Labour, but you never know how the Tories will do out of it as well. Um, there will be the SNP are now under pressure on two flanks in rural Scotland where Kate Forbes probably could have done quite well, but also in the central belt where Labour will be able to win on a competency argument. I don't think Labour are going to be out, able to outflank Hamza Youssef on the left on very much. Um, they would have been able to do that with Kate Forbes. Um, so it's really going to be a battle for who offers a kind of um, a fresh broom uh, to come into politics. Uh, if Hamza is able to portray himself as a kind of new start for the SNP, refreshing government, bringing in some new ideas, then I think he's got a chance of at least holding those numbers up a bit. Um, but Scottish Labour do definitely have an opportunity. The real opportunity for Scottish Labour is a Labour government of Westminster. And um, if they can get into government of Westminster and actually do something with it, and who knows if Starmer will, um, but if they can do something with it that means a lot more money and investment coming into Scotland, then they can start winning votes back in Scotland. But they need to prove that they care about Scotland and that they'll actually do something uh, before they can start really uh, reclaiming ground off the SNP. Right now, it's unlikely that Labour will be able to actually leapfrog the SNP into first place in Scotland. And Seth, what do you think of those two, two issues? Yeah, I think I've yet to see anything that suggests Labour really making any significant comeback in Scotland. And more than that as well, if you kind of look at Scotland's voting history, right? Um, last time a Westminster majority from Scotland was Conservative was like in the 1950s, right? Uh, up to this sort of seismic moment where the SNP became that party, right? It was Labour. And a lot of people felt at that time that Labour had abandoned them. There was a lot of hurt. I don't think that's gone. I think a lot of people still hold that feeling. It's not just about oh, well, the SNP are collapsing, so I'll go back to Labour again. There's quite an emotional bond still um, with regards to going back to supporting Scottish Labour. The SNP, however, like we're kind of saying, is definitely going to be in a really difficult position, so it's hard to say where those votes will go. They might not go anywhere. People might just become disenfranchised again and go back to not supporting any political party in Scotland, um, which would be you know, a real shame, but that might just be the next outcome is that we just see a drop in voter turnout. Um, as for independence, none of the candidates going into this campaign had a route to independence. Nobody has a route to independence and any of the candidates who were selling it were saying that to try and build support. Like, the fact is that we are kind of stuck right now where support is sitting around 50%, slightly above, slightly below. It just kind of keeps bouncing back and forth and the UK government are functionally vetoing any opportunity to pursue a legal referendum. And so, yeah, I don't know what the route to that is either, but at the moment, there's no clear path. Both of you, really, really great stuff. Great analysis, lots of insight, lots of things for lots of things for people to think about. So honestly, really, really appreciate it, both Rory and Steph. Do you follow both of them on social media? We just get loads of insights for free. So uh, but thanks guys, really appreciate it. That's such short notice and speak to you both soon. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, okay, so. bye bye.
Great stuff from both of them. We will be talking, of course, about France uh, shortly. Um, uh, we have the brilliant Cole Stanger live from France to talk us through the tumult uh, taking place across the channel. But first, we're going to talk about the decision to bar Jeremy Corbyn's local constituency, Labour Party, from reselecting him as their candidate. And we have the brilliant Jess Barnard, who is an elected member of the National Executive Committee. Haven't purged her. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. So I don't want to give them ideas, Jess. I shouldn't joke about You're these things. It. <laughs> Yeah, they've, uh, they're making a list and they're checking it twice. Um, yeah, enough about the ice pick brigade for now. Um, yeah, Jess, so look, you were at the National Executive Committee uh, where it passed 22 to 12 against... I mean, you have to think, this is quite astonishing, the former leader of the Labour Party who was elected um, into leadership elections. Um, and it should just be noted, firstly, what the text said, because the text basically said because he didn't, he got defeated in the 2019 general election, didn't talk about anything else, didn't talk about the HRC anti-Semitism, spoke about, they basically, he, he did badly in 2019 and that he would be an electoral liability in the next election. Should be noted, he got a higher share of the vote in 2019, let alone 2017, when Labour got 40%, but in 2019, then Neil Kinnock did in 1987, then uh, Ed Miliband did in 2015 and Gordon Brown did in 2010, Less seats because of first past the post and the loss of Scotland in 2015. Um, but the point I'm making is what you they haven't kicked out other leaders of the Labour Party for losing elections before. But that was what was presented to you, wasn't it, as an NEC member? Yeah, that, that was the wording presented to us. And you're right to raise all of the points you have, because, um, you know, those were many of the points that we were making in the room at the time. And I think it's clear for everybody to see that this move 
to, to essentially ban Jeremy Corbyn from standing as a Labour MP um, and ban the local members from, from having the right to decide their own candidate uh, into the upcoming general election is probably one of the most deeply factional and undemocratic and pretty dangerous moves that we've seen, ever seen by a Labour a Labour leader. And I really don't think that anyone should be dismissing this as a one-off or, um, you know, kind of brushing this under the carpet, because I think you can bet that this will be used again. Uh, this sets a really dangerous precedent of the leader of the Labour Party deciding he doesn't like uh, a potential candidate um, and deciding to interfere with, a, with what should be a democratic process. And I feel really, really sorry for, in particular, the, the, the community of Islington North, because you know they've they've got these reporters just constantly hanging around hounding their local MP um, but they've you know they've had an MP that they really like that they've returned to Parliament 10 times and now some guy Keir Starmer is trying to basically start a factional war in their backyard it's appalling and it's just an appalling way to treat uh, you know what is a community of really loyal Labour voters who have been voting Labour for decades. I mean just I mean, what you raise is obviously incontrovertible, can't really be denied on democratic grounds, just preventing a local party from reselecting its candidate, I think speaks for itself. And it should be actually, I wonder what some of them would think about this. That local party actually voted for Keir Starmer or nominated Keir Starmer uh, for Labour leader back in, in 2020. So I bet some of those, some of those up in arms in that local party voted for Keir Starmer in 2020. And it is worth reflecting on who that Keir Starmer was because in 2020 after the leadership after the election defeat so it mentions the basis is the election defeat in 2019 after that election defeat Keir Starmer repeatedly called Jeremy Corbyn his friend repeatedly denounced the media in that leadership contest for demonizing uh, Jamie Corbyn and he thanks Jamie Corbyn for leading Labour through some very difficult times in his own words and for re um, and for energizing our movement, I'm using Keir Starmer's words. I don't. How, it's just it doesn't be two faced. Has there ever been a more? I mean, I, I need to be careful with you because I don't want you being kicked out of the Labour Party. But I mean, it's absolutely astonishing on every I level. I think it's fair to say he is completely unrecognisable from the man who kind of pitched up in front of uh, Labour members during the leadership campaign. I don't think one of his 10 pledges have sort of survived the the transformation we've seen. Um, and the promise of unity, it just could not look more disingenuous, you know, if he tried at this point, because there's been there's been so many maneuvers and particularly this you know this latest one which just shows that there is there is zero intention to maintain this kind of broad church labor party that we hear so much about um and i think the, the truth of the matter you know it, this is this is about more than just jeremy and i think um it is important to note, you know, the impact on Jeremy and, and how deeply uncomfortable it is to see, you know, a good man hounded in this way. But I think the truth is he he represents the kind of politics that Keir is not comfortable with. You know, he's he's inspiring. He's a socialist. His politics is most often formed from a place of compassion. And, you know, he's not perfect, but he does represent the kind of politics that inspired millions of people in a way that Keir can't do. And I think this this move kind of shows Keir to be quite maybe uncomfortable with that and, and a little bit petty, to be honest. I mean, it is striking as well that, you know, whatever we think about um, Keir Starmer, who, I mean, I think it is worth just emphasising the dishonesty of his leadership campaign because much of the media hasn't 
made this that point. And I think the reason they've done that is because they regard the left as illegitimate political actors who much of the media, from centrist to right, are united in loathing. And they think it's good politics. To, it doesn't matter. They know it's lying and cheating. But if they were, if it was centrist on the receiving end of that, they'd be crying blue murder. They'd be like, this is absolutely outrageous. How could he? How do, you know, and a lot of liberals who clutch their pearls completely about people like Boris Johnson being dishonest. But when it comes to the left being battered through lying and cheating, I mean, it's just astonishing, isn't it? Because it is such an overt onslaught on democracy. But being in, I mean, being in the NEC meeting and the media coverage, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you think? You're, you're completely right. And I think what is frustrating is, you know, I get quite a lot of media requests um, around about these times. And wh whenever you uh, you go into those spaces, the number one thing that, that you're pushed on is to say, well, will you be supporting Jeremy Corbyn if he stands as independent? By people who know that if you if you go into a space and you, you go, oh, yes, um, that you'll, you'll be kicked out of the Labour Party uh, in, an, in an instant um, for, for supporting someone then that stood uh, against the Labour candidate. So there's like this deliberate kind of attempt to um, like cause issues for left representatives who are really just there to speak up for members. And there isn't really any interest in scrutinising the people who are actually making these decisions and saying this this future prime minister, which, you know, I believe Keir will be the next prime minister, um, that's if the you know, Tories don't have a shuffle around again. Um, this future prime minister is acting undemocratically and quite dishonestly. Maybe we should interrogate that and in the, you know, in the public interest, hold him and the people around him to account, not kind of, you know, create some controversy with some left figure representatives that, you know, that isn't uh, even like a formally elected politician. So um, it's deeply disappointing and, and it's frustrating and it's tiring. And I think it does show just, just the scale um, that we're up against as the left and how much more we need to build to kind of push back and create a space where we can articulate uh, the, the kind of change we need to see and the kind of change we need to see in our own party. Just on that, I mean, FSM, the dog is amongst the commentators who've said they ripped up their membership card having heard this news. And a lot of people have. I have to say, you know, one of the maybe privileges I have running lots of different social media accounts is I can read the comments of lots of Labour Party members or people who used to be the Labour Party. And again, a lot of the people... I've seen leaving the Labour Party discussed, voted for Keir Starmer. You and I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey, but a lot of people who voted for Jamie Corbyn twice did vote for Keir Starmer because of his pledges. But the point I'm making is a lot of them think, well, there's no hope now because the left has been vanquished. And actually what they're doing to Jeremy Corbyn here is just a punishment beating, and partly to terrify other left-wing Labour MPs that if they bother to stick their heads up above the parapet, they'll be kicked out of the Labour Party as well, which means they're in a sealed tomb. I mean, they either get kicked out of the Labour Party or they stay in, but they're essentially silenced. Whilst in parliamentary selections, they've been systematically rigged to stop let anyone on the left, almost, with basically one exception, from being selected. So I guess a lot of people think, well, there's absolutely no hope. This is the most authoritarian leadership in the history of the Labour Party and the left is dead and it's not coming back. Yeah, and that's a completely fair point. And I think there... You know, I don't have the answers. I don't have uh, a magic solution that's going to result in socialists kind of storming back to power in the Labour Party. But I think, I just, you know, I want to recognise there is a lot of anger. And I, I think I get, you know, I get quite a lot of people replying to me and emailing me, telling me that they're leaving the Labour Party. Also, you know, people calling on me to leave the Labour Party. Um, and 
I, I think it's important to to note, you know, I, I really feel sad that, that so many people feel that Labour Party isn't at home anymore. Um, and I don't think that, you know, I don't have any kind of ill wishes on on those people, but I think it is probably unhelpful for us to spend our time kind of arguing with each other. For those people who decide to stay in the Labour Party to try and change it, I think that's a good thing. If people decide to leave and spend their energy trying to campaign outside the Labour Party, however that might be, you know, in like their unions or in grassroots campaigning, you know, that's also something that we need in order to change things in society. I think as someone who's on the NEC, you know, there's no point where I wake up in the morning before an NEC meeting and think this is going to be a laugh. When I stood for this election, I think we knew just how kind of hard this would be. We knew it would be quite hostile. We knew it would be difficult. We knew we probably weren't going to win many, many votes in that space. But we are there to speak up for members and we are there to report back and shine a light on the things that are going on to try to challenge them and try to empower members to challenge them. Um, and, and that's a really important job for us to do. And let's look at the reality one of two parties is going to win the next general election that'll be the Labour Party or the Tories and I think it's likely that it'll be the Labour Party and I you know I join a Labour Party because I believe it's the route uh, to achieving real change in our society and I still do believe that but we have to be in that to, to change that and I think it's um Richard Bergen who's always saying you know things change very quickly in politics Things do change very quickly in politics. I don't believe that Keir Starmer is going to be the leader of Labour Party for all eternity, but we need to be ready for when things do change. Um, but that, you know, that I think is important to say, like, there's a lot of people who say, you know, I'll stay and fight or uh, don't give them what they want by leaving. And I, I know that isn't enough. You know, I think it's if, if people feel that they can't give their energy to it anymore, then I just would encourage them to, you know, join the trade union, organise their workplaces um, and make sure that when there is a Labour government, we have a, a grassroots movement and a trade union movement that's just as strong to kind of keep the pressure on that Labour government to deliver the change that we need to see. Um, just lastly, I mean, David Barrater asked about whether it's likely Jeremy Corbyn will join the Greens, and just to answer that personally, I don't think he will do that. I think if he, I think he is, he is likely to stand, but he will stand, I think, as an independent candidate. But I mean, just finally on that, and I'm not, again, I've got to be careful here because obviously not trying to ask you something which will put you in trouble amongst the witch hunters and Stalinists. Um, uh, um, ice pickers. I have to say, just just firstly on that, by the way, I just want to say something about these people. Because I've known, I've been around the Labour Party all too long, I have to say, and I have got the grey hairs to show it. Um, <laughs> and what I would say is, whatever I think about New Labour, the people, I keep saying this, but I'll keep saying it, the people behind New Labour were substantial figures. They were actually quite, you know, they were people like Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or Alistair Campbell or Peter Mandelson or all the people around them were actually quite impressive figures in some senses, in some meaningful sense. And these people are crap. They are so mediocre. They, is, they are so insubstantial. They don't, you know, they're just, all they care about, really, what makes their heart beat a little bit faster is taking on the left, or the trots, as they put it, which is anyone to the left of Gordon Brown. They don't care about anything else. They have no vision for the country. They have no ideas for the country in, in its greatest crisis since World War II. Um, I mean, it's just embarrassing watching these little minnows, these useless, charmless, principle-free, in many cases, just weirdos in charge of a Labour Party and w obviously winning by default because the Labour's self uh, Labour's self-immolated. But anyway, I just want to get out of my system. Um, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn standing there, what is going to happen now is a lot of people are going to go and campaign for him and it's going to be used to purge the Labour Party, surely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I think um, you know, it's important people are informed about 
their decisions and um should 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 jeremy stand i don't know if he will but um should he stand um as an independent or otherwise um you know everyone that goes to campaign for him i think it's really clear um the labor party will will remove will cancel you know will end their membership um because they'll consider that a breach of the rules which is uh, supporting someone who isn't a labor candidate um i think that that is really really sad it will result in us losing uh, many men like many many members i know of many members who intend to go and campaign for him it's really really sad it's a situation we should never ever put our members in um mm -hmm. and yeah that 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 will be the next um kind of a, attack on the left i guess um but i think it's, it's important that, that people do what they, they, you know, if they decide to do that, then they do so knowing that knowing the consequences of that and knowing that that will be the action the party takes. Um, I really, really hope that, that there is some sort of, um, you know, overturning of this decision. I really hope that um, they reconsider it. I think that's unlikely, to be honest, um, because as far as we've seen, there's been no effort, no effort to build bridges um, or to consider the impact of all this on members. So I think it's a really deeply sad and worrying time for, for the Labour Party. It's not a good time for the left. We have to be honest about that. Um, so it's really important now more than ever that we rebuild in our communities, in our unions, uh, in any spaces that, you know, we, we can campaign on issues we care about keep the pressure on to care where where we know that he's gonna uh probably let us down and not not go far enough jess brilliant stuff as ever really really appreciated your insight and um you know it's you were someone who obviously voted on the nec to keep the right of jeremy corbyn's party to reselect him um which i think is a position which will be vindicated um by history the people at the top of the labor party i'm sure they're enjoying the way up but the way down I don't think it's going to be quite as enjoyable for them. Um, take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Owen. Take care. Bye-bye. Before I bring in, uh, brilliant stuff as ever from Jess, before I bring in a next final guest to talk about France, uh, I just noticed Tad Cantwell asked, and I need to say sorry to Tad Cantwell because I did not read out your question last time because I'm a terrible person. Could the loss of young enthusiastic canvases potentially make the Labour vote less than expected and maybe return more MPs from other parties? I do think it's interesting, obviously. I do think Labour have a very, very good chance of doing very well at the next election just because no government in British democratic history has self-immolated as thoroughly as the Conservatives have. Um, so I think they're likely to win by default. But obviously they do rely on people to come out and knock on doors for them. And I'm sure they do have some angry, agro-centrist trolls <laughs> who are very enthusiastic about Keir Starmer. Someone's got to be. Um, but obviously I don't think they're going to get, you know, lot the same um, enthusiastic force that, for example, in, in 2017, spurred on the biggest increase in vote share for Labour since 1945. Not enough to win. Don't need to be corrected on that one. But obviously, you know, it was a big step in the right direction. Um, I think they'll still do very, very well just because the Tories have done such a thorough job in destroying themselves. But I doubt they will have um, lots of enthusiastic canvases from younger generations, certainly. Right. France is in the middle of tumult, an expression which, to be set fair, has been said quite a lot in its history. Let's just have a little look. <laughs> Let's bring in Cole Stangler, the brilliant journalist, who is in La France. So, Cole, great to see you. Likewise, thanks for having me. Um, first of all, um, do you should explain, so what triggered this um, mass upheaval was Emmanuel Macron's attempt to increase the pension age, which he forced through via executive decree because he didn't get, he didn't win the vote in parliament because he lost, 
his presidential majority in the National Assembly. Um, and so and firstly, just explain what those pension reforms are. But also, why is it why is it proved such a focal point? Because, I mean, in Britain, they've done this. They've increased the pension age far higher than France and no one's even noticed. So, you know, is there is there more things going on here that maybe need it be need unpacking? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think you can sort of look at this at this movement in two phases, I think, if you want to simplify things. One is the first phase really would be from, from the start of, of when the reform was first formally announced and that first day of union-led uh, strikes and protests in January, so late January. It's now been going on for more than, than two months. I think the first phase of the movement was really uh, focused generally on, uh, on this question of the, of the pension reform. Um, and I think you had some other broader economic malaise and frustrations with, with Macron pent up in there. But I think what, what happened really since uh, mid-March, uh, uh, since the government, um, so what's, what's happened since mid-March is we've had a, a, a sort of shift, an evolution in the movement to, to not just be about this question of pensions, which is deeply unpopular, I'll get to in a second, but also one that touches on bigger issues about French democracy. Um, and, and more particularly, perhaps the, the, the lack of, uh, the feeling of, of of French democracy not being adequate, people not being represented, and the way the government has gotten this bill through past the finish line, so to speak, um, has made a lot of people infuriated using this constitutional maneuver, Article 49.3, uh, which allows them to approve legislation without an up or down vote in the National Assembly. That's what uh, President Macron has done. Um, and that's, I think, you know, provoked a lot of, a, a lot of uh, uh, discontent. And I think as well, um, just in that second phase, if you look at the reaction of the police too, I think that that's also fueled uh, some of the some of the uh, discontent. So just to take a step back, if we go back to that first phase of the movement, the real kind of underlying issue here of, of pension reform, the government's uh, law is hiking the retirement eligibility age from 62 to 64. And because we have the time to actually sort of get into the details, I want to stress that um, we often just talk about the retirement age. But no, this is the this is the eligibility age that that floor, the lowest. Um, the earliest age at which you can retire for most workers would move from 62 to 64. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be retiring, uh, you know, all of a sudden at, at, at 64. It doesn't mean that everyone's retiring at 62. A lot of people will be retiring even later than that because you also have to validate a certain number of years uh, of paying into the system in order to, to, to access a, a full pension. Uh, the new rule is going to be, it's already 43 um, according to previous reforms, so 43 years worked in order to access a full pension. So very concretely, let's take someone who's you know 21 years old today, 22 years old today, just starting the workforce. You add 43 and, and 22, um, you know they're not going to be retiring uh, uh, at, at 64. It'll be it'll be later than that. Um, and, and you can kind of you know look look at different careers. So already the the the, the hike in the retirement eligibility age, um, you know, has, has has upset a lot of people because. You know, I think there, there, there's a few things going on. If you look at the 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 the, the French left and the labor unions in, in France that, that still have quite a lot of, of, of sort of appeal across the broad population, for them, the right to retire with dignity is, you know, a pillar really of social progress. And, you know, speaking with, with um, uh, François Ruffin, MP here with La France Insoumise, I think he puts it really well. Uh, he talks about the right to retirement being sort of one victory in, in this broader struggle uh, to have less time uh, working. So that begins with, you know, winning the right to have to, to have not have children be working. Then it means Sundays off from work Then Saturdays off from work. Then it means lower work week, uh, less hours on the job. Um, then it means having retirement. Then it means lowering the retirement age. So 
for them, you know, for the left, this is sort of a, a historical battle. So I'm, you know, mentioning a few different things here, but I think really a good way to think about it is that first phase really focused on the actual issue that hike in the retirement eligibility age. And then a new phase that I think has really started with the way that, that Macron has, um, you know, gotten this, gotten this bill approved. Maybe we can get into that more. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting we look at the polling, by the way, which is quite striking because it shows actually originally there was more sympathy for in hiking the pension age than not. And there's been an absolutely dramatic collapse. So back in September 2022, favourable uh, was 59%, unfavourable 41%. That's now switched to 69% unfavourable and 31%. Um, favorable. So, I mean, that's to do. That's the success, surely, of the of the protest movement. The protest movement made us made its argument, and that's shifted the position. And also, the it, I mean, it should be said as well. Not only the left opposed it, but also the far right have also opposed it. Yeah, the the far right have opposed it, but they haven't really done anything uh, about it. I mean, if you if you go to these demonstrations, the far right are not present. Mm-hmm. That's not an exaggeration. They're they're just not there. Um, the, these demonstrations are dominated by the labor unions and by and by left wing parties. Um, but that, that graphic is interesting that you just showed, Owen, because actually, if you look also at um, that, that's that's that that shows opposition to this reform. So, so now, we're now we're at seven out of ten people are opposed to the reform. Seven out of ten people also say they support the protest movement, even after the government uh, has approved it. Right now, there's really if you're sort of on the side of of, of unions and protesters, which is I should say the the sort of majoritarian view at this point in France, um, you know, there, there are really two options, two ways to really stop this, this this bill right now. One is the hope of continued street protests that could force the government to to back down. There actually is a um, precedent for that. In 2006, you had mass protests over a youth employment contract. Uh, a, 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 one of Macron's predecessors, Jacques Chirac, who um, perhaps is is maybe a wiser statesman, just listening to you speak about uh, some of the Labour Party leaders, um, you know, uh, you have to give Chirac credit for at least being uh, something of, of a statesman and perhaps understanding the mood of the country. Uh, Chirac at that time, who was president, understood that maybe this was not the right time to, to let this bill get approved. And so uh, ultimately, the, the prime minister didn't apply it and the National Assembly went back and, and actually repealed it. So you have a precedent of the government backing down in the face of, of mass protests. And the other option that protesters are, are, are hoping for is that the French Constitutional Council, which is sort of the equivalent of the Supreme Court, could um, could actually invalidate part or all of the reform. They're supposed to issue a ruling on that on April 14th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and in the meantime, we still have another wave of protests that, that's that's taking place next week on April 6th. But just to, just to take a step back, if I can, to talk about sort of the, the opposition here, um, you know, one of the things that, that's striking is that I think for a lot of people, if you talk to people at these demonstrations, um, and it was definitely, definitely uh, sort of present yesterday when I was speaking with, with younger people, there's a lot of young people, um, a lot of students, because for them, this isn't just about uh, uh, retirement. It's about, you know, they see the government approving this bill, you know, without uh, a democratic mandate, ignoring unions, ignoring protests, using this arcane constitutional measure. Um, and they see the police repression of the movement as well. And I think that's another topic we can maybe talk about. I think that's, you know, fired people up as well. And so, I mean, imagine, you know, this is the, the cover today of, of Liberation, which is a, a mainstream center-left, left-wing newspaper, but not by any means far left. 
um, you know, their, their cover today was Generation 49.3. So Generation 49.3, referring to that, that, that article of the Constitution showing young people. Because imagine if you're, you know, 20 years old, you're growing up in France, you know, you've just come out of this, you know, this horrible pandemic. Uh, the economy is not good. Um, you know, the job prospects are limited. You, see, you care maybe about climate change. Uh, you want to see, you know, the social progress. And you look at this, this government that's just cracking down, yeah. um, literally, literally cracking down uh, on protesters, not respecting the democratic process. And I think they've unleashed this movement that, that again, really goes beyond just, just pensions. We're talking, about, we're talking about democracy, I think, for a lot of, as, as, you know, kind of trite as that can sound. If you talk to a lot of the people, um, you know, it's, it's this very profound sense that the government does not care about them and that we need to have a more, you know, democratic country here in France. Yeah, I mean, just just in terms of before I talk about um, police violence, I mean, in terms of where things are at the moment, I mean, is is there is 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 a protest movement in danger of fizzling out, um, and and where do things stand in terms of the leadership? Because obviously, what happened? I'm, in fact, met you in person um, just after the first round of the last uh, presidential uh, election when. Uh, Mélenchon, who uh, represents the forces of the more radical left, uh, was narrowly kept out of the second round by Le Pen, who went on to lose, of course, against Macron. A lot of people on the left voted for Macron to stop Le Pen. Um, but, but equally, then, in the parliamentary elections, the left did very well. And actually, unlike, say, Britain, the centre-left was forced to accept a junior role to the mm. more radical left. And the radical left got a very substantial showing in those parliamentary Election. So, I mean, where do things stand there? And particularly given the danger of the far right ever being present in France and able to suck up disillusionment, even though they're not, as you've said, leading these protests? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, we have one sort of rather than talk about polls like that, that, get to that in a second. But we have one real concrete case study of this, which is last weekend. Uh, in southwest France, in a very left-wing district, in, for the for the legislative elections, there was a special, excuse me, a special legislative election um, currently held. The seats currently held by La France Insoumise, and the the vote uh, total for the Macronist candidate just completely collapsed um, when you compare it to last uh, last summer. Last summer, so in 2022, the Macronist candidate got around 20 percent and qualified for the second round where she then lost to uh, a candidate from La France Insoumise backed by the, the left-wing alliance, the NUPES, the NUPES or NUPES or whatever you want to call it. There's a million ways to call it. Um, that candidate this time around uh, got around 10% of the vote. So really cut in half. Uh, and that candidate came in fourth place this time, uh, very far from qualifying. The second round this time around is uh, the, the, the La France Insoumise candidate versus a dissident without going into too much detail, a dissident socialist. And then in third, uh, the, na the national rally, and then in fourth, Macron's candidate. Okay, so, so very concretely, what does that say? It shows us that even this is a you know, particularly left-wing district, it shows that the, you know, Macron's party is, is suffering directly mm -hmm. from, from this reform. That's one thing, a, a concrete example. And if you look at the polls just more generally, um, Macron's party, I think there's one big, big poll that shows you know, a 4% drop uh, and a slight increase for the national rally and, and the left wing holding, you know, b basically steady. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a collapse in, in, in Macron and uh, in, in Macron's support. The, the thing about the far right is, you know, uh, they ha they've sort of taken just a backseat to the whole protest movement. They say they oppose the reform. They don't go to the protest. They don't do much in the National Assembly, um, but they're trying to appear as sort of a responsible alternative to, to Macron. 
And in some ways, there's actually unity between the, uh, the national rally analysis and the Macronis analysis, both of which paint the left wing as essentially irresponsible, dangerous mm. people who don't you know, respect the rules of French democracy. There's been a, a whole fuss made about the way that they're interrupting um, the way they conduct themselves in parliament. This is really like, you know, catnip for the, for the Macronist base, but it's also a point in which they <laughs> agree with, with the national rally. It's this idea of, you know, order, order versus chaos. And I think that's one thing that's been pretty striking about the movement among others is the way in which, um, you know, it's, it's shown to what extent the Macronists view the left. And I say not just the far left, the left as a political adversary on par with, with the national rally. That France did not. That was not how things used to be. <laughs> that's a particular evolution that we've seen under under Macron, and that's I think a, a, a frightening evolution. One kind of one more, more darker aspect I think of this political crisis that we're going through. Just want to ask you about police violence, both in of itself, just how extreme is the police violence we're seeing? I remember again when I was in France last year, and um, young leftists pointing out that the police violence under Macron was the worst they'd seen under any administration in France, and several. Before any of this, there were many cases of French protesters losing eyes and having severe injuries. So I'm just wondering about the extent of that violence. But the other thing is, if we just think about French history, Les Evenements of May 1968, what happened there was police brutality against French students proved a trigger for then what became a big, big upheaval. I'm not saying France 1968 is going to repeat itself when you had a mass general strike in a revolutionary situation. Charles de Gaulle actually fled the country that time, the president. But um, yeah, just how bad is the police violence and it could it provide a, a trigger uh, for, you know, particularly spurring on many of those young French protesters you've, you've, talk, you've talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it already is, you know, encouraging people to come out to, to, to the protest, ironically, because it's actually been sort of a dissuasive, uh, you know, factor in, in, in previous years. But, you know, this is an issue that has gotten a lot of attention and it's not just, um, you know, very like very mainstream forces are, are, are institutions are talking about this. Now you've had, you know, Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, the Council of Europe, um, sorry, the Human Rights Commissioner, I believe, I want to get her title right. The, um, the Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, excuse me, Adunia Miatovic, um, has been critical of the French police violence. You, re you really have two things going on. One is just the excessive use of force. This is something that <laughs> the French police are very good at doing, using excessive force in protests. And another thing that we've seen is um, arbitrary de 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 detention, or sorry, excuse me, preventative detention of, of people. So when they're coming to protests or at the end of protests, the police will swoop people up. Um, and, the, and then the mentality is really, well, well, we'll deal with, you know, if there are charges to be filed later, or maybe they were doing something, maybe not, but we'll swoop them up anyways. This has been a... a an increasing occurrence in the last in the last couple of weeks, um, as we've seen these undeclared nightly demonstrations. So these two things: excessive force and uh, preventative detention, which is not something you typically have in, in a in a democratic society. And there's sort of one event in particular that I think is really um, well. There, there's a lot of things, but maybe one thing just to focus on for for uh, the people that are that are watching and listening um, is you had a, a, a protest take place in southwest France over a planned uh, reservoir for the agricultural industry, a lot of environmental protesters showed up and a huge police presence, you know, was also there and, uh, you know, injured, I think, uh, around 200 demonstrators, one person in critical condition uh, that, that, that uh, you know, uh, in yeah, severely critical condition. And you have 
the interior minister also, we've had now recordings emerge that show that the, the government, um, uh, excuse me, that, that, that uh, uh, emergency medical personnel could not intervene on the scene because they were being blocked from accessing it because of, uh, because of the police. Um, so the, the, I think that, that is, that has been particularly, I mean, shocking for a lot of people. And, and then if, if you look at the protests, there's a particular police unit, the Brave M, um, uh, which have a very almost totalitarian uh, sounding name when you translate it into English, these sort of mobile, uh, 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 re they repress violent action, motorized violent action repression brigade. Um, and these people, you know, have, you know, go around on, on, on motorcycles, um, and can quickly, you know, uh, hmm. hurt, hurt people. And I think that's, that's something that, that people have been criticizing uh, a lot as well. I could, go, I could go down the list of all the different things. Maybe one last thing I'll say, because I think it's important to point out the French interior minister lied about this. That protest I was mentioning in, in, in Southwest France, he said that there were not military-grade weapons that were being used. That's a, that's a lie. He's, he's, he's pretty good at, at doing that these days. In fact, um, if you look at actually, as journalists and went out uh, and looked at the grenades that were being used and they actually literally are classified as, as military grade weapons, according to the French government. So um, I think this is inflaming, you know, public opinion as well. Um, all these little sort of micro incidents um, and sometimes not, not so micro incidents. Um, so it's definitely part of the, you know, part of the discontent. Cole, really, really brilliant stuff. And um, do you actually, you can follow Cole's, uh, updates on Twitter, Cole Stangler, that's S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R, Cole, C-O-L-E. Um, but really, really uh, compelling and insightful stuff. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously the, the scenes of brutality from the French state are horrific, as expected, but it is heartening to see a broad resistance movement in a country um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in an era when, you know, the alternative often is fascist uh, barbarism. Um, there's a focal point for discontent and disillusionment, which um, I think France has a great history, but I don't want to, I hate the essentialist view of French culture. It's the French who resist and fight when actually in British history, there's a long tradition of dissent and struggle, and indeed in the United States, which is often intentionally suppressed. But um, Cole, that was brilliant stuff. Really, really appreciate it. And I will speak to you soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. See you in a bit. Really brilliant stuff as ever from uh, Cole. I mean, actually, if you were to check out, I did a documentary um, on what happened in the French elections uh, last year. If you just type in on my channel, I don't know what I called it. Something Fr France far right or something. Anyway, you can find it. Um, before I finish, we've got obviously throughout the week interviews and videos as always. I just want to do a quick mention of Paul O'Grady, the very... Um, I don't know how to describe Paul, really. Um, I mean, he was such a... It, I mean, in my own childhood, sort of loomed so large. Um, I think one of the few gay figures I can think of who it was kind of okay for people in the playground to think was funny as Lily Savage. It was quite a, quite, quite an achievement in, in quite a homophobic period, I would say. Um, I had the good fortune of meeting him once. I've got a little photo. Why not show you? There I am, looking much younger than I am now. <laughs> um... But um, when I met him, I was, you know, one of the few figures I've met, I was actually starstruck when I met him. Um, so so witty. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, had no pretensions about him of any description. You know, very chatty, scouser. Um, and, yeah, he's just full of humanity and full of heart. It was a, it was a big, big honour to have met him. And um, I know from people who obviously know infinitely better than me, 
um, that that wasn't a show. That's who he really, really was. So I just wanted to end, actually, with a clip from Paul O'Grady socking it to the Conservatives. The footage is a bit grainy, but you can hear what he's saying, um, unless you're obviously listening on the podcast. But just uh, I, will, I, will, I will sign off with Paul O'Grady. Um, as I virtually like and subscribe and support some patreon.com for slash ojoz84 if you can. Um, only if you can. And um, I will see you tomorrow in the form of some video rant with her. But otherwise, thanks to all the brilliant guests today. Thank you for tuning in or listening if you're listening on the podcast. Um, and lots of love. I'll see you in a bit. Talking of nets, George Osborne, what do we think? Is it up or is it down? Do you know what? I'd sooner have Ozzy Osborne as Chancellor. <laughs> I tell you what, because at least with Ozzy, the only cuts made would be the effing and blinding from his speech, that's all. <laughs> Do you know what got my back up? Oh, those Tories whooping and hollering when they heard about the cuts. Did you see them? All in the background. Do you watch telly or politics, you lot? <laughs> but ain't X Factor, not I can interest it. <laughs> No, they were, they annoyed me, they're all, yeah, you have signed up, he's got to scrap the pension, yay, no more wheelchairs, yay, <laughs> bastards. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ooh. I do apologise for the language, that just fell out. <laughs> I bet when they were children, they laughed in Bambi when his mother got shot. I bet <laughs> In the words of the old musical song, folks, it's the same, the old world over. It's the power, what gets the blame altogether? It's the rich, what gets the pleasure? I know, a bleeding shame. I tell you what. It wouldn't be the French. <laughs> Look at them now. The French kick off. If the coffee's cold, for God's sake. We should take a leaf out of their book. Oh, yes. We should take to the streets. We should be vocal in our fight against oppression. We should let... Oh, shit. We should let them know that we are not taking these draconian cuts lightly. We should fight for the rights of the elderly, of the poor... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.